Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. My name is Jillian Hayes, and I am an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship clinical pharmacist at Duke University Hospital in Durham, North Carolina. Today, we'll be discussing antimicrobial stewardship in one of the busiest hubs of the hospital, the emergency department. The ED serves as the point of entry to the inpatient space, but keeps one foot carefully balanced in the outpatient realm too. There are analyses to suggest that up to 50% of all healthcare in the United States occurs here. Holy cow. When you combine this with the fact that infections are one of the most common reasons folks seek out emergent and unplanned healthcare, the ED becomes a natural space for antimicrobial stewardship to have the potential to thrive. I have so much respect for folks who work in the emergency department, so I am absolutely thrilled to be hosting this episode today. Before we introduce you to our esteemed guests, I wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsors for today's episode. This podcast was supported by an educational grant from Melinda Therapeutics, but they did not have any input onto the content of this episode. Special thanks to them for supporting us as we discuss this fabulous topic today. And without further ado, let's introduce you to the stars of our show, our panelists. First up is Allison Dittmer. Allison currently practices as a clinical pharmacy specialist in emergency medicine at UPMC St. Margaret Hospital in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Allison completed her PharmD at Northeast Ohio Medical University, PGY-1 residency at the University of Cincinnati Westchester Hospital, and PGY-2 in critical care at Cleveland Clinic Akron General Hospital. In addition to emergency medicine and antimicrobial stewardship, her practice interests include the transitions of care of emergency department patients, which will come in extra handy today, toxicology, and pain and sedation in critically ill patients. Allison, we are so thrilled to have you with us today. I am just as thrilled. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Next up is Zach Nelson. Zach is currently the lead pharmacist in infectious diseases and leads the antimicrobial stewardship program at Park Nicolet Methodist Hospital, where he also practices in emergency medicine occasionally. Casual, multiple jobs. After residency, Zach spent five years leading a progressive emergency medicine practice at a busy ED in South Minneapolis and with the state public health department prior to transitioning to his current role. During the pandemic, Zach led expansion to 24-7 ED and ICU coverage. His overlapping practice interests in both EM and ID include transitions of care, the role of emergency departments in public health, and modernization of EM treatment approaches to infectious diseases. Our listeners may be familiar with Zach from our episode on treatment of STIs. So Zach, welcome back to Breakpoints. Thanks, Jillian. It's great to be back and with such a great group discussing emergency medicine, which has been a real passion of mine that I've tried to keep in the forefront of my my career path. Excellent. Thrilled to have you back. Uh, And last but certainly not least, Dr. Michael Puglia is a tenured associate professor and director of emergency medicine, antimicrobial stewardship, and the Emergency Care for Infectious Diseases Research Program at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. His research program focused on improving the management of infectious diseases in the emergency department and downstream care settings with an emphasis on systems engineering guided interventions, which I cannot wait to hear more about. His work has been supported with funding from both intra and extramural sources, including the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality and the Wisconsin Partnership Program. 
From 2014 to 2019, Dr. Puglia chaired the American Academy of Emergency Medicine's Antibiotic Stewardship Task Force, representing emergency medicine at the White House One Health Forum and the United Nations Global Antibiotic Resistance Challenge. If that doesn't say welcome to Breakpoints, I don't know what will. We are thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Jillian. I'm really excited to be here and uh, chat with this group on this very important topic, I think, in stewardship. Absolutely. Listeners, as you can see, we are in for an absolute treat. We've mentioned that the emergency department serves as an entry point to a variety of different forms of healthcare, acute care outpatient management, the gateway to the inpatient space, and for some patients acting as one of their only touch points with the healthcare system, perhaps in the absence of a PCP. That is perhaps a topic for a whole other podcast and a whole other day, so we won't go into that, but I think it's important to acknowledge what a critically important space the emergency department really is for so many people. Keeping this diverse blend of encounters in mind, what unique considerations do stewards need to consider when engaging with clinicians or planning antimicrobial stewardship initiatives in the ED? And Zach, we'll come to you first for this one. Sure. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot of unique aspects to stewardship in the ED. Some of those big things would be that there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of diagnosis in general, but especially around potential infections and also with severity of illness. So especially when the patient has, for example, an undifferentiated sepsis-like picture, Um, It's important, probably even more important than later on in their stay, that we have a good steward in place at this point to ensure that the empiric treatment is reasonable, taking into account all those patient situations and and the, the information we have available. And it's also great because we can work elbow to elbow with the clinician to figure out what is best. And so that sort of traditional stewardship strategy of prospective audit and feedback is incredibly easy because the clinician's sitting right next to you. Other things that are common in the ED would be pressure on throughput, length of stay. This has become an issue, especially lately with boarding patients, how we make sure that their care is just as good as if they were admitted into the hospital. We definitely run into some reimbursement-related practices. So sepsis, of course, is a big reimbursement-related practice that is oftentimes protocolized from institution to institution. And then patient receptiveness and satisfaction is is definitely something that's a little bit more unique to to our setting, I think, than than some others. Zach makes some really good points. Um, Being on site in an emergency department, I love sitting right next to the physicians, being able to keep up with the rapidly changing course of a patient. That sepsis picture can change from minute to minute and hour to hour. And I think it can make it really challenging from a traditional ASP perspective to chart review and figure out what's going on and make that intervention because oftentimes you're 20, 30 minutes late. Antibiotics already been given. We have information up on the floor and in the department that you're not going to see charted. You can't see when those vitals change and the patient starts to crash. So I think it can be really challenging from a traditional ASP perspective, um, but why I love being right on site and able to participate in stewardship when things are actually happening. Yeah, I I would just echo all those points. I mean, when we think about stewardship in the ED and solving sort of stewardship dilemmas in the ED, the lens that that I've been trained to do in, in my PhD work is to look at it from a systems perspective, a systems engineering perspective. And all, all those elements are things that we would consider systems components. And when we think about various settings in healthcare, whether it's the ICU or the emergency department or ambulatory clinics, 
they, they each have unique work systems and characteristics of those work systems. And sort of, as already been alluded to, the ED has sort of theoretically higher acuity, more dynamic presentations, incomplete information, time pressures, uh, limited diagnostics, or the need to make decisions on therapy with limited information. Sometimes your patients are, are altered or delirious or have cognitive impairment. They can't give you accurate history or symptom report. So you're sort of, sort of working a little bit blind in an incredibly time-pressured environment. And what that tends to do, when you think about it from a, a human factors perspective and uh, sort of a design, is you have to sort of build your interventions in a way that not only acknowledge the work system you're working within, but the shortcuts and the cognitive heuristics that providers are going to do. And the way I would have explained it simply is you got to make it really easy to do the right thing. If we can make it simple for the providers who, again, are considering a variety of pathologies at one given time and infectious diseases are, you know, a big piece of that pie, but, you know, maybe a third to a a half, even some people you're thinking about whether or not you need to prescribe an antibiotic. Um, But that's a portion of what they're dealing with at any given moment, right? And so to, to kind of hold the attention and optimize, you know, the D's of stewardship, you know, getting that diagnosis correct and all the things that flow downstream from there is really important to make it easy as possible to do the right thing from a stewardship perspective. And so with that lens, we can build interventions that are ED customized, if you will, and really sort of try to streamline processes. And I think that's the key uh, because it is so challenging. It's such a challenging environment. I love what you said about making it easy to do the right thing. I think that, you know, can to an extent apply across stewardship in all avenues. But like you said, with the amount of decisions that are being made, limited data, so much going on, so much input, making it easy to do the right thing in the emergency department specifically seems like a pretty important priority when designing things from a systemic perspective. That segues us beautifully into my next question. I'm the type of person I learn best by examples. So I would love to hear maybe how you've applied some of that information. I'll give you the choice. You can tell me whatever type of lesson you want to impart to our audience. So either an intervention that worked really well and what communication strategies you utilized to have success, or you can share about an initiative that maybe didn't go to plan uh, and what you learned from that. So Allison, I'll come to you first for this one. I think I would be remiss not to mention one of my favorite ED stewardship initiatives that many, many hospitals use, the ED culture follow-up program, um, which is many times staffed by pharmacists, but just want to highlight that other colleagues can do an excellent job with this as well, whether they're nurses or advanced practice providers. Following up on patients and de-escalating is a huge initiative that has been really successful for our health system. And we continue to implement in other hospitals. I was just talking to another site last week about how they can implement their stewardship through a culture program. So, the, the quick rundown, pharmacists or another provider follow up on cultures after the patient's discharged. We de-escalate. We stop therapy if we can. We make bug drug matches and escalate therapy in some cases. And I think it's really created a great relationship between my some other pharmacists and our ED providers. They gain a lot of trust in us to make sure we're making great antibiotic decisions for patients, as well as gives me some patient-facing contact time as well and talking with them. But I will say There are a lot of challenges to a culture follow-up program, especially as our EHRs become more sophisticated. Constantly, I'm seeing notes from PCPs and specialists. They're following up on the culture. We're following up on the culture. What do we do? Um, So I think it's just another avenue where we need to improve communication and make sure somebody's following up and communicates to the patient what is the final thing they need to do. 
And I will say one area that I'm interested in moving forward with is kind of trying to tackle our watch and wait patients. So typically our providers in the watch and wait approach, they still provide those prescriptions. If you're feeling worse in three, four or five days, take the prescription. And we all know that the patient goes home and starts the prescription on day one because they want to take something. So I'm hoping to expand our culture follow-up program to those watch and wait patients where we as pharmacists can follow up on those patients in their window of, are you feeling better? Are you feeling worse? Do an assessment and help to decide if that patient really does need those antibiotics rather than just reflex giving them to them on their discharge. Can I, can I dovetail a little bit on that, Allison? Because I think the, the culture follow-up program is such an incredible example of like collaborative stewardship in the ED. But I think it's, it's worth saying for the programs out there that the best practice is not to have the physician working the clinical shift doing the culture follow-up. I think everyone here, like that's obvious, but that's still the model at most EDs is that the provider taking care of the new incoming patients is the one who gets a pile of cultures dropped on their desk in the middle of their shift. And so we should be strongly discouraging that across the board and forcing sort of force function EDs to have another dedicated group of individuals who are, and I think the ideal model, we can just say the ideal model is obviously having a pharmacist in the loop, um, driving those decisions and, you know, whether or not you have a nurse that's making the phone calls to check up on the patient to, because the pharmacist you know, is verifying meds or whatever, but the managing C physician overseeing the department should not be the one doing that work. Um, and so I think I want to be very strong about that because that'll hopefully give ammunition for those providers working in shops that are still doing it that way, that that is not best practice and that's not the best for their patients. I think when I, you know, worked in EDs where that was the model and it was given to me, even as someone who's very two standard deviation outlier of uh, advocate for stewardship, it would be like, okay, this is a, you know, a questionable culture result or CFUs are a little bit low, but I'm literally dealing with a coding patient and they were on a reasonable antibiotic. You know, do I have time to make that call to de-escalate? Certainly I would be zeroing in on bug drug mismatches, right? Someone who's going to get septic from inadequate therapy. Those ones, you know, of course you have to get those dealt with, but for de-escalation and discontinuation or narrowing therapy, it was a much higher bar because it was, you know, it's not as dangerous essentially to let somebody go on an antibiotic. It's not good, but when you have competing priorities and you're running a code, like you might not get to that phone call in a timely fashion. So I would just kind of echo that, that one nuance to that piece. Absolutely. Having a dedicated person who can really lay eyes on the situation and is not worrying about 10 other things is extremely important. And I think it's an opportunity for collaborative practice agreements, which really aren't very highly used in the emergency department so that pharmacist or another clinician can make those decisions independently without having to talk with that provider who has about 14 other things on their mind in that given moment. Yeah, it ends up being a rubber stamp, essentially, right? Like if you know someone's talked to the patient, reviewed all the culture data, looked at the current culture, you know, and then you're saying, here's my recommendation. Are you going to be like, no, no, wait, let me stop and review that chart and call that patient myself. I mean, it makes no sense. So I think you're right that the delegation kind of uh, agreements could be quite useful in that efficiency side. Yeah, I agree with both of you. It's been a game changer for sure. Having these culture follow-up programs, especially those that have been helped to justify additional ED resources from a pharmacy standpoint. And I think 
Allison, you made a great point about the medical record getting more sophisticated over time, and that seems to be a good and bad thing in some ways. You know, from the good side, we had implemented here some prospective review of discharge prescriptions. So some of those some of those things that we might catch, um, you know, during the culture callback that, oh, they were discharged with 10 days of Bactrim for this pretty simple cellulitis that underwent IND, we can catch that before they go home. And we still have all of that information that we would need to, to reduce that duration of therapy. And then on the other side, you know, a lot of these results are now released to the patient before we even have a opportunity to talk with them about it. So patient education has become a lot larger piece of this over time because they are looking for clarification after attempting to interpret those results themselves first. One nice piece that we had implemented um, out of request, kind of dovetailing off transitions of care, is we had some long-term care facilities that we end up receiving most of their patients when they go to the ED. And there's some embedded nurse practitioners that round in the long-term care facilities. And they, they were saying, you know, we'd, we'd find out only a week later that our patient was sent out on antibiotics for, you know, UTI in most cases. And that's a whole nother podcast about, you know, whether or not uh, there's an issue with UTI overdiagnosis. Of course there is, but it was really helpful for us. And we built in an automated notification system through Epic where they would automatically receive a notification in their inbox. If it was a patient that was in their facility that they rounded on was discharged from the ED and whether or not they had any culture data pending, they had an antibiotics, they would automatically be looped in. And so that we didn't have to worry about sort of one-off communications of looping them into the reassessment process when the, when the resident would arrive back at the facility. And they, they thought that quite useful for them. That's awesome. I feel like our long-term care facilities are so siloed. So incorporating them into any stewardship efforts, I think is amazing. Yeah. The, the only reason it, it really worked is because they were providers within our system, essentially. So it, it didn't cover all the facilities, but it was a good number. It was like a dozen facilities in the area. So I think it was some progress, but of course, those siloed facilities that don't interface with your system, your hospital system are a big challenge there. I could speak a little bit to efforts we've done to revamp sort of diagnostic stewardship around urinalysis. So when I first started at UW, I was a pretty early stewardship person, just kind of getting into my research career and, and not too much on the quality improvement side. And I started realizing that the urine testing was a big problem. And I was hearing a lot of feedback from long-term care facilities and geriatricians and other folks that like, hey, what's going on with all this uh, UTI diagnosis in these people that really doesn't didn't seem to have any symptoms of UTI. And so this asymptomatic bacteriuria question started kind of hitting my radar. And I just started looking at like, what kind of urine tests are we ordering and how are we ordering urine testing? And so what I found out pretty early on is that every single urinalysis in our ED at one point was a urine with reflex culture. And, the, and they were being sent through standing order protocols in nursing triage. So they had a standard set of, you know, simple orders that the nurse in triage, this is before we went to a physician in triage model, but at that time we had, you know, traditional nurse triage and they had, a, it was like, it was like 10 different orders they could put in EKG, basic labs, urinalysis. So every urinalysis that was sent in the ED for that period of time was always had a reflex culture, whether or not there was any clinical consideration of UTI at all. And so I had an MPH student who wanted to do this project and we sort of got rid of that. We eliminated reflex cultures altogether. So we went to a model of you want a urine culture, you're going to be ordering a urine culture, whether it's an add-on after you see the urinalysis or you want it one off or whatever. 
And we saw reduction, I think it was like 46% reduction in urine cultures in a year. So some dramatic drop of like, yeah, people didn't want all these urine cultures. They were just getting them automatic. And we had a, a I know there's different thresholds, but ours was like five, five WBCs per field. So we get feedback a little while later that there was a couple cases of people that got admitted where the inpatient teams noticed that someone had forgotten to add on the urine culture, essentially a pyelonephritis case or someone who developed urosepsis on their second day of admission or whatever. And so like, well, hey, we would have caught these if you had the reflex urine culture. So it was like literally an N of two cases that were concerned. They wanted it back. And, and fair enough, like, right, you know, you should be getting cultures on uh, urine cultures when you need them, when they're appropriate. So what we ended up doing is building out with some human factors engineers, sort of looking at how many different ways could we support the design, the actual design of the actual order, building out as many layers of decision support into the order as we can. So it just it's flagged right at front, like this is for UTI only. Here's the reason when you should be getting a urine culture, when you should not, you have to select hard selected an appropriate indication that we worked with like urology and ID and pharmacy to come up with like, these are the general indications for why you'd want to order it. And so we kind of reintroduced it into the wild and sort of this idea of like, okay, you can order a standalone urinalysis. You can order this urine with reflex culture. If you're suspecting UTI from an efficiency standpoint, so you're not going to miss the culture. Yeah, but essentially it's, it's been better in terms of like, I feel, you know, sort of there was a paper published called, I think it was called like deconstructing the urinalysis, but essentially the idea that like order the urine for what you really want it for clinically. And I think reflex cultures are great in the right context when there's a suspicion of infection. And that was one good example of a somewhat of a design solution to a problem that was hard to thread the needle on because over and under culturing was the problem on both ends. Michael, I think our institution did something similar. We're calling it the urine infection test, put infection right in the Uh, title. mm -hmm. But it's been a little challenging from an ED perspective of trying to convince providers why they have to answer seven different questions to order a urine culture. So education on that was a little bit tricky. Um, But from my perspective, it has really cut down on the number of cultures that I'm seeing, especially the number of cultures I'm seeing on patients who are discharged for a completely irrelevant reason versus a, a real UTI. So it's working, but I think we have to balance the amount of clinical decision support with the efficiency that we need to maintain in an ED setting. I think a lot of stewardship folks feel a certain type of way about, you know, your analyses and the diagnostic stewardship, right? Ideally, we have it as a choose your own adventure book and you get like one piece of data and you'll get to justify why you want each little piece of data as you go. But as you said, from an efficiency standpoint, that would be bonkers and people would just boo us right out of the room. So finding a a balance, um, making it easy to do the right thing, especially from a system standpoint is, is really crucial there. Even some of our basic stewardship interventions, like developing empiric treatment guidance um, and, and making efforts to make them visible and available so that they know they've been vetted by a variety of experts, can really go a long way in providing more consistency from provider to provider and from site to site, especially if we're in a larger healthcare system. We really want to ensure that if somebody presents to one of our small critical access hospitals, that they still get the same level of care that somebody would get if they were coming to our, you know, our large level one trauma center. So that's certainly something that we have done recently to try and, and, and really with a focus on visibility and branding to make sure that there's credibility that comes with these recommendations and that they're easily accessible for for our providers. 
Accessibility is key and keeping it system-wide, thinking of the number of providers that float from hospital to hospital, it is never going to work well if your guideline at one hospital that they float to is completely different than their empiric treatment at another hospital. And one area that I think is growing is the use of technology. So uh, I know our site and uh, several other nationwide are using mobile applications. Instead of relying on a lot of different tertiary resources, we develop it with infectious disease, with ASP, with emergency medicine, so that it's straight on their phone. What is first line? What is second line? And even durations can be included to make it that much easier. Yeah, I think that it's a really helpful resource. And just being honest, you know, that with all the things that are being considered, the emergency docs are not going to be up to date on the latest resistance patterns and the, the newest antibiotic that's recommended. And, oh, we changed the doses for STIs this week. You know, it's just a rapidly evolving field in infectious diseases. And to expect people to keep up on all the changes is like, it's not realistic. So I think we've got to do the best job we can to just make it easy, get that information in front of them. And there's not many people out there that are just trying to be incredibly rebellious and like, oh, I really want to prescribe this for this. Re-. Like, they're just not going to be that opinionated about it. Like, if you tell them this is the right thing to do, but yeah, again, just getting that information there is like, this is what we want you to prescribe in this clinical scenario is so powerful. And it's just such a good tool. And, and the ED providers, when you when you ask them, um, they, they really like that resource. Definitely. Most, if not everyone, is trying to do the right thing, right? And the best they can. So making it easy for them to do the best they can, like you said, getting those resources in front of them has been huge. So when I first started looking into ED stewardship, there was a paper that had come out that was authored by an infectious disease physician and it was sort of calling out emergency medicine, like emergency medicine needs to do better in stewardship. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. This is kind of like what I'm interested in. And the whole catchphrase of like why stewardship is bad in the ED is because ED providers don't care about their patients because they never have to see them again. That was literally the take home message of the article. And it was like, okay, I'm going to literally make it my mission to prove this person wrong. So I've been like on a crusade for the last 10 years, like trying to figure this out. But shortly thereafter, Larissa May's paper came out, uh, a call to action about stewardship. And it had like a really nuanced argument about the systems of the ED and the challenges. And it was like, it was perfect timing. But those two came out within a year of each other, I think in like 2012 and 2013. And it was just like such a, a, a chasm of perspective between those two lenses. And I think it's just come so far with acknowledging not only that ED is really important, but, you know, that's kind of a unique, unique beast that we have to tackle with unique solutions. Absolutely. I think so many people who maybe are fast to criticize have never experienced what it is like to hang out in an emergency department. In my very first position, uh, even though it was a stewardship role, I ended up spending a significant amount of time as an ED pharmacist. And holy moly, it is humbling. It'll humble <laughs> you quickly. Um, I respectfully never want to go back. The difference between ED and ID <laughs> is more than just a couple of vowels apart. So you don't need to convince me. But no, to your point, I think anyone who's quick to criticize is perhaps has not experienced all of the different, um, just the overstimulation alone and the amount of neurons that it takes to to just take in everything that's going on down there is, is enormous. So I appreciate you guys sharing those examples. Perfect. So now we'll pivot directions a little bit and focus on a highly requested topic from our audience. So for all of our audience members who send us emails or tweets with possible topics, we listen to you and we're talking about one today. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about these agents even in future episodes, so stay tuned for that. But we will go over a little bit about long-acting agents such as Dalbavancin and Aritavancin to prevent hospital admissions for common gram-positive syndrome. So skin and skin structure infections specifically 
specifically. Um, but y'all, the panelists, feel free to dabble uh, in whatever your pathways may include. These agents have been here almost a decade. We still admittedly don't know how to use them optimally, and we want to learn. So what has your experience been with implementing pathways for Aritavancin or Dalbavancin in this space? And what do you think the ideal role of therapy is for these agents to make sure that we're using them you know, in a responsible way? So Michael, we'll come to you first for this one. So I'm very interested in sort of skin and soft tissue management and pathways, empiric therapy. And, and I think this is these long-acting agents are an incredible tool in our toolbox that is probably, I would say, underutilized at this point. I don't, again, I don't have like national data to support that, but I know even locally we've, we've published, um, I had a, a great opportunity to work with some of my pharmacy colleagues, Luke Schultz, Aaron McCreary, Jared Baxa, and we wrote a paper on sort of an interdisciplinary process to review all our cellulitis admissions and figure out which ones would be those ideal uh, candidates for sort of receiving Ritavancin in the ED and going home. And so that that was published in uh, the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So I'd point you to that because I think it is a pretty good resource. But just big picture wise, you know, when we look at the, the literature on cellulitis, just retrospectively, we can look back and a lot of the cases of cellulitis did not, that are admitted, do not have a really strong indication for admission. They're sort of admitted on this clinical gestalt of this person is high risk, or this is a kind of a large cellulitis. That's generally what kind of shows up. And most of the patients have kind of pretty short stays. They get transitioned to oral pretty quickly. They go home. They're, when you look at the clinical trials, there's not a lot of sepsis in this population. There's not a lot of serious adverse outcomes in this population. So you're generally not super high risk for having a, a terrible outcome on that case. So, so we're working with sort of a lower risk population, but we have a lot of patients that are infected because they have a risk factor profile. So if, you're, if your threshold to admit anybody is anybody with risk factors for treatment failure, you're going to be admitting a lot of patients with cellulitis. And I, I would say a lot of those admissions are pretty low yield and they're incredibly expensive, right? So if we could keep patients out of the hospital, and I think the data that the um, has primarily been you know, supported by uh, the pharmaceutical companies that, that market these drugs, is that it's pretty compelling evidence that it's a cost saver. If you can keep the patients out of the hospital, save a couple day admission, save the IV antibiotics and, and give them the infusion in the ED. Some of the logistic considerations, of course, we you know initially had a three-hour infusion version. Now there's a one-hour infusion version. That was one of the biggest hangups that the ED providers had is like, unless you have an observation unit where you can park people for a longer period of time in your ED, it was perfect for the observation unit, right? Because you had the three-hour infusion, you could check progression, make sure they didn't develop any systemic symptoms or you know sepsis criteria. So it was really a perfect for the ED ops unit in terms of how it was designed. Um, but now with a one-hour infusion, I mean, that's really low bar. It really doesn't really change operations all that much to tie up a room for another 60 minutes. In the right population, they can be incredibly useful. One, one of the other big challenges, and I don't, I don't know if this is a shared experience, but it seemed like some shops were really able to get it up and running and use it in, because they had, I would say, institutional buy-in that it was a cost saver for the institution. I think the biggest concern, the pushback, what we were getting is that there was concern that the patients were going to get stuck with a huge bill on the back end. And so the providers were like, really like worried, you know, like is this patient going to get a multiple thousand dollar charge for this infusion? Is their insurance actually going to cover more for them? Like their out of pocket costs if they get admitted in some cases. And so it's this really tension between sort of system costs and patient facing costs. I don't feel like we were ever able to really get a good, clear answer real time on that. We were so people could actually get actionable data. Um, I'd love to hear more perspectives on that, but I think in the right scenario, 
it's an incredible tool. I think we, it's probably underutilized and we could talk about some of the selection criteria, but I, you know, I think they're fairly obvious is like higher risk folks, those who are maybe have compliance concerns, follow-up issues, those sort of things. Social issues are a big one, obviously. Definitely agree with Michael to the point that ED providers don't want to send somebody on this amazing drug and not know if they're going to get it reimbursed. And at this point, it feels like we're kind of putting it in the patient's hands in some some sense because we send them a paper that says, here, if, if it's not covered, fill out this big long paper from the manufacturer and see if you might get it covered. But who's going to follow up on that? Certainly not ED providers working shift work. So that's uh, a real challenge. And I think, like you said, one of the hangups on ED providers wanting to use this medication. So I think currently involvement of ASP or ID is paramount to understanding who is a good candidate. And I think one of the points that might get missed is we need to make sure if it is a a treatment failure that the first treatment was adequate, appropriate dose, appropriate drug, appropriate durations were actually tried before we go from 150 of clindamycin straight to dalbavancin. Absolutely. Yeah. And then there's really no doubt in my mind that this is more cost effective than an inpatient hospitalization for vancomycin, for example. But if we're looking at, in general, the the skin and soft tissue infections that we see in the ED, of course, some patients with their comorbidity profile are a little bit higher risk for treatment failure. But with all of the data coming out about IV, you know, not being better than oral, I think it really narrows down the, the pool of patients that ideally would be uh, candidates for this. In my experience, there's a lot of source control issues that come back in that are considered treatment failures. And so, you know, without, as Allison alluded to, input from from ASP perhaps or, or infectious diseases, these might be ruled treatment failures when they're actually not. And so that's my concern, especially with the larger cost of the drug and those those issues that we have talked about, about payment, that we should really be reserving these for people who have failed that first line treatment with orals that, or of course, that meet those other social issue criteria that, that we would consider. Yeah, I think we where we landed is it was like 10% of patients. So like one in 10 admissions could have potentially been avoided with an appropriate, you know, use of a long acting agent. And so it's not, it wasn't for everybody, you know, Zach's points are really well taken that there's a lot of lower hanging fruit with stewardship for skin and soft tissue than Aritavancin, right? It's certainly a great tool for that right patient scenario, but like, you know, we're still seeing tons of patients getting double covered for community acquired MRSA with routine cellulitis, despite, you know, good trial data that suggests you don't need to double cover non-purulent cellulitis. We're getting, you know, it's obviously a big controversy about whether or not you need to supplement with antibiotics after an IND of uncomplicated abscess. My interpretation in the articles we've written about this suggests that the number needed to treat is fairly high to save one potential treatment failure with an uncomplicated abscess. And so you still see a lot of double coverage going on there, even though the cure rates are sort of approaching 90% with no antibiotics at all in that population. Uh, One of the other favorite rants I have about cellulitis is stop outlining the cellulitis. Like it is totally normal for the redness of cellulitis to expand beyond its initial margins for the first 24 to 48 hours with completely adequate and responding treatment. It's much more important to have the patient characterize their pain their discomfort of the skin in the area than the redness area. And you can make an argument that redness intensity is important, but this, the actual area is super unhelpful. And it's not uncommon to see them draw an outline of the redness and say, if it goes beyond this line, you come back. 
that is a huge driver of repeat ED visits that are low yield and can roll into an admission easily because of treatment failure, you know. So again, making sure the dose is correct, uh, trying to, you know, restrict treatment to the minimal amount necessary, if at all. And then also don't, don't uh, give advice that's sort of self-fulfilling, like it will go outside of those bounds within the next 24 hours. I love that. I'm hearing stop drawing on your patients, dose your drugs responsibly, <laughs> and ongoing need for source control is not a failure of antibiotic therapy. These are, you know, three of my favorite things to enforce craft time with patients being now on the list. Um, perfect. <laughs> I do have one more listener request related to these agents. So has anyone figured out how to make clinicians aware that a long-acting lipoglycopeptide is still in the patient's system? So for example, if somebody gets a dose of Dalbavancin, they're sent home, uh, let's say, unfortunately, they they had the, the line of return drawn on their leg. They end up coming back, they get admitted, and they are now on IV vancomycin. Has anyone figured out a solution of how to alert us, hey, they got Dalbavancin a couple of days ago, other than just chart review? Jillian, I don't think we figured it out, but a couple ideas. One provider focused, one patient focused. So we know that we get an alert when someone has an MDRO. Their MRSA in the past one year there could be a way to alert on the EHR, patient received a long-acting antibiotic. It would be a little bit tricky from a technology standpoint of when to turn that off um, after seven days and could still get missed. But another thing to think about is making this patient and PCP focus. So on the discharge summary, you received Dalbavancin today. This is a long-acting antibiotic. It will remain in your system for one week or some sort of auto alert to the PCP, whoever is following up with that patient. They received a long-acting antibiotic. No antibiotic is needed for the next seven days. So a couple different approaches. I don't think any of them are going to solve the problem of having to do some chart review, but a few ideas that could be considered. Those are great ideas. I, I kind of forgot about this issue, but we did in our, we have a published case series on this as well. And one of our patients happened to come back within 24 hours. Essentially, the, the patient ended up getting admitted and the provider didn't even know that they had received the long acting. And it was like clearly not enough time to see a response. The infection looked exactly the same, you know, those sort of things. So we dinged that as a failure, but it was clearly just sort of a systems issue that they didn't know. And they, they didn't know enough about the drug. We had tried to educate and kind of roll it out, make sure everybody's aware and how it acted. And, you know, it's just, again, it's like information overload. I like that alert idea though, Allison, that's really cool. I think that'd be really neat. The other thing I was thinking is, you know, you got your pacemaker little uh, credit card thing, like, hand this, if you ever go to a doctor in the next two weeks, hand them this card, you know, something like that. But um, I feel like it's, it's uh, making it automated would definitely be cleaner. Yeah, it has to be automated. We can't rely on memory. Um, we could do a temporary tattoo on patients oh, that dissolves after right seven forehead. days. Yeah, you got Dalbavancin <laughs> or Ritavancin. Okay, this is taking a turn that I didn't anticipate with this episode, but I'm not opposed to it. I like it. I like it. See, you say you haven't, got it figured out. But I think those are some great options, um, including the temporary tattoos. Nothing says branding. Zach mentioned branding, you know, of the stewardship program. That's pretty strong, right? You leave with a temporary tattoo um, in which antibiotics you received. So you're welcome, everyone, for that questionable idea. Okay. Um, I'm going to call this next portion rapid fire round. Uh, so we're going to ask about some commonly seen, commonly utilized stewardship strategies. So if you have strong opinions, now's the time to get them out. That's what this session is here for. We will start with order sets. We spend a lot of time developing these order sets. 
I would argue sometimes too much time developing these these order sets, okay? Does anyone use the order sets? Do they matter? Michael, I'll come to you first for this one. I, I think I'm biased because I've spent a lot of my life developing the ED antibiotic order set. So I think we have to sort of um, get into the mind of the provider and sort of like, how are you thinking about a potential patient with an infection and how do you sort of categorize and bucket things? And that may not always be exactly aligned with sort of how infection diagnosis looks on the back end, right? After, you know, culture data is back, it's sort of like suspected this or suspected that or sepsis NOS, like not otherwise specified. We don't know what the sepsis is. And so having those categories built in is, is really important. Um, so we worked with, a, again, a multidisciplinary team of some uh, human factors folks, ID folks, uh, stewardship pharmacists, myself, others in the ED, pediatric ED providers, and developed these very, very complicated, complex ED anti-infective order sets, um, one for adults and one for peds. And we, we kind of made it one-stop shopping. I think that was the key because it not only includes empiric therapy in a way that I think is organized how the emergency physician will think about diagnosis, but it also includes orders, uh, your standing orders for those various conditions. And it also, the biggest win, the biggest reason people use our order set is it has the discharge scripts in it. So it's the only order set we have where you can actually write your discharge prescriptions, including first line, second line, third line, considering common allergies, all of that is, is baked into it in, uh, in sort of a branch logic where you can literally just go in there to calculate the doses for peds automatically. It tells you what our first line agent is for any of our things. And, and it's sort of organized on like mild cellulitis, moderate to severe cellulitis or pneumonia with risk factors. And, you know, so it's got all these sort of layers to it and you just click through and you get to the end and you can just click and bam, your discharge scripts are written. And so the, what we hear from, from our residents, um, our providers is that they really love the order set, um, for the discharge prescriptions. And that's kind of what gets them engaged with the order set right now. Um, about 50% of all our antimicrobials are ordered through our order set. And so I'd like to get that number higher, but I think that's pretty good. So we found really good success with it. The one piece of exciting news is that after presenting our order set at ID Week this past fall, um, Epic approached me to now build it into their foundations platform. A version of our ED antibiotic order set will now be available on every Epic instance nationally coming uh, in 2024. So hopefully the work of customizing and building ED order sets is going to be much faster and easier for folks because they have that template to start. So we're, I'm working with them right now to sort of fine tune it. The trouble with foundation systems is that they can't include a lot of sort of the local nuance. And so it'll be probably like the high level architecture of it and some of the functionality, but you know, some of the decision support that we like locally, whether it's building in drip scores or, you know, other things that were like MRSA colonization screening is kind of baked into our order set. Probably all that's not going to translate in, but it is getting picked up and it'll be sort of rolled out in the standard sort of epic build going forward, which is really cool. I love the comprehensive approach. I will say, I think we need to try to get ED providers to use them from the get-go if they're going to be successful. If they have their own little favorite order set that contains a few diagnostics, their basic labs and imaging that they're going to get on a lot of patients, getting them to then switch to our very robust order set that contains a lot of those same things, plus a few more, some are pre-checked and some are not, can be tricky. It's just more to sift through. So I think definitely emphasizing from the beginning, starting to use one of these comprehensive order sets rather than switching back and forth can be helpful. 
And certainly going back to the, you know, some of those basic initiatives like empiric treatment guidelines, um, obviously it's important to make sure that these types of order sets reflect what is advertised in those as well, because that can certainly create some confusion if one is out of date and the other is is not. And so there may be conflicting recommendations. I'd be curious if the other panelists or Jillian, you have any experience with in terms of keeping things up to date and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I think especially with the comprehensive order sets that that can be particularly challenging, but, but certainly they're certainly valuable, especially as you alluded to with those discharge scripts where the durations and everything are already just pre-filled in for them. Yeah, I think one of the things that's been nice, and again, we're, we're sort of fortunate to be at the high end of resources, is that, you know, if the ED pharmacist is seeing some wonky scripts going out the door and they're like, oh, wait, the, the order set needs an update, we'll do like an ongoing sort of constant revamping of, it, of the sort of the specifics, doses and things of that nature. But I, I think you're right, at least annually, it needs like a full review where like you have to get the group together again and kind of just everybody go through and it's like, is this still appropriate? Has the evidence changed? Has our antibiogram changed or what have you? So because that, that's the worst thing is when you could really destroy trust and, and just blast out, you know, people using your order set is if you sort of are start giving out of date or incorrect recommendations, that'll, that'll really destroy the sort of the credibility of the order set. So you got to be really careful with that. I'm glad that you all agree. Yes, order sets are useful. It makes me feel better about all the time, right, that we put into to developing them. Um, I have no perfect solution for keeping them up to date. One of the things that we try to think through with any new initiative, any new guideline change, what order sets does this affect, you know, and we try to catch them sort of as we go. But uh, I think other than that, an annual review, et cetera, is, is uh, the way to go to make sure that those are, are up to date. Um, and then as Allison mentioned, squashing those adorable personalized order sets that sometimes have some creative recommendations or creative favorites uh, when we can and, and keeping that standardized. Okay, this brings us to rapid fire round two, antibiotic redosing and ordering, especially in borders. Uh, Zach, we are coming to you. How can we optimize care for these patients, especially now that this is increasingly prevalent? Yeah, I, this is another situation in which I may not have any perfect solutions, but we can make an effort at it. I know for specific situations in which we are giving second doses very quickly after the first, um, you know, extended infusion, piptazo is an issue that sometimes gets missed. And so we have actually moved to having our ED providers order the entire panel so that ongoing doses are provided for them, even while they're in the ED. There was also a lot of nursing education that went into releasing signed and held orders by the admitting provider. So this, I think, was a big, a big step for us in terms of making sure that patients are well taken care of in the ED when they're boarding, especially when they have time-sensitive medications. At least at our institution, our admitting providers are pretty quick to come down and see the patients and get orders in. And really, through that nursing education and the partnership with them, we've actually had a lot of great work around making sure that there aren't any issues. So it's really engaging your nursing partners and then also your hospital medicine partners to make sure that those orders are released and able to be seen. And um, also from the logistical standpoint, from the ER, the certain situations in which there might be exceptions that it makes sense to order ongoing doses from the start. I like that idea. Ongoing doses from the start, we don't always just have to do once orders. It can always be canceled, but we can't make up for lost time when a dose is significantly delayed. 
with the number of borders, I think it's a great role for an ED pharmacist to do some prospective review and make sure we're not missing things. But a lot of institutions are implementing unit-based pharmacists in other locations as well. So add ED patients who've been there for more than 24 hours to that queue. Add them to an in-basket message. Make sure we're looking for high-value things like missed antibiotics. They don't need to be doing a full chart review on the entire patient, but treat that as an inpatient location and not just a temporary location because it's no longer just temporary. I think those are all great points. And I would just advocate like any emergency folks should be advocating for that time to release of admitting orders or the time at which the admitting teams start taking ownership of those patients that are boarding. The shorter the time that is, the better the patient outcomes are going to be essentially. So like at our shop, we've been able to negotiate four hours, the four hours of boarding that now that team is primarily responsible unless there's an acute decompensation that requires, you know, airway management or they're level of care would change or something where the ED can jump in and kind of stabilize while the team is coming down. Of course, we've got the proximity to those patients. They're still our patients. But I think I'm a little interested in the concept of multiple doses ordered in the ED. Some of us that are working in sort of the transitional care space, especially around uncertainty, I guess, I think there's a lot of therapeutic momentum that starts and diagnostic momentum from the ED that is tough to unwind as it is. And so I think if we're already pre-programming some of those doses, it's a little bit of a catch-22, right? If the patient's like sep- severe sepsis, septic shock, going to the ICU and boarding in the ED, you know, we need to make sure those doses are on time and, and on point, like with with the high accuracy there. I think in a lot of cases when they're like sort of throwing antibiotics at the wall and seeing what sticks, you know, maybe pre-programming those second doses is not optimal. So I guess it's like maybe in certain populations, it's absolutely the right thing to do. And then in certain populations, it's like, nah, let's hold on that second dose and kind of see when we get a little more diagnostic data back and see the trajectory a little bit and kind of kind of pump the brakes a little bit on that. So I think it's a double-edged sword maybe with that. Yeah, totally agree. And that that is one of the big reasons we settled just on doing that for our extended infusion Piptazo. Oh. So everything else is typically every six or eight hours at least, but that, that four hour increment between that loading dose and the subsequent infusions was just short enough that we were getting a little nervous, especially when you take into account the the potentially critically ill patients. No, that's a really good point. Okay. You guys are crushing rapid fire round. I have one last rapid fire, the grand finale, a little bit of a plot twist, but still a common obstacle that so many facilities see. So even places that we would think of as generally well-resourced are still working tirelessly to justify 24-7 ED resources, specifically ED pharmacists, but sometimes other resources, like we mentioned with the culture callback program, et cetera. So when we are thinking about performing antimicrobial stewardship, these are key members of the team. If you find yourself in a situation where you are resource limited in any way, how does that impact our ability to perform stewardship? What is your advice? Where should we start in terms of of stewardship initiatives when we don't have all the resources that we would like? I think Michael and Zach have said it already, but I'll drive it home. Make it automatic. Make it easy to order the right thing using guidelines, using order sets, using an application. Make the antibiogram easy to find um, so that the provider has an easier time ordering what we want them to order. And by that same stance, 
make it just a little bit harder to order the wrong thing. So make sure our automated dispensing cabinets contain the first line medications. Don't stock everything in the automated dispensing cabinet because then even if it's verified and the pharmacist tries to catch it, chances are the nurse has already given that antibiotic. So make it just a little bit harder to give the wrong thing. We'll still try to do it in an expedited fashion, but try to make so that our pharmacists who are verifying orders when there's not somebody on site can intervene and not give an inappropriate medication quite so easily. Yeah, perhaps the the best answer is if you don't have an ED pharmacist, get one. Uh, you know, advocate, bug people, yell, kick, scream. The value added there is so incredibly high, and the the yield to patient safety, cost, patient experience, it just goes on and on. And I think the literature is very compelling. The value added there, but I think anybody who's kind of paying attention realizes that that is sort of the best practice and that it's an absolute necessity at this point, I think, um, for stewardship and many other reasons. I mean, it's just, I can't imagine working in the ED without sort of the, the interaction with the pharmacy team. It's just really um, such an integral part of the team. And just like, it's really kind of like, that just needs to happen. So beyond that, I think Allison's points are right. Like if you absolutely cannot advocate and make it happen, even if you could only have coverage during your busiest hours or something like that, some amount of coverage is going to be better than none. Uh, these systems approaches are, are critical. Yeah, absolutely. And I can empathize with smaller institutions that might have a little bit tougher time. And for us pharmacists, obviously, we are not necessarily revenue generating. And so cost avoidance is our biggest friend, which can sometimes be less compelling for hospital leadership and things like that due to its theoretical nature. But um, completely agree with Michael. It can simply be said that these places are not practicing the standard of care if they don't have one. There's tons of literature about there, out there to support it. And you're really getting somewhere between two and 10 times your investment back when you have a pharmacist present in the ER. So so really cost is is something that that I don't necessarily think is an adequate reason, but certainly if patient safety is at the at the front of mind, it's a no-brainer. I will say as as wonderful as I think we all are, ED pharmacists, we can't do everything everywhere, so it's also important as an initiative empower our nurses. They are the biggest group of healthcare providers in our hospital and on, in our emergency department, so get them involved in stewardship. Some of the biggest things that I've tried to do is clarify how to take an accurate allergy assessment, making sure you actually get timing, what the reaction was, what has the patient tolerated, and educating nurses to do that successfully can cut down on all of the questions questions on beta-lactam allergies, making sure our nurses know what order to administer certain antibiotics, how to administer them separately to avoid having confusing allergic reactions, and even getting our nursing colleagues involved in literature through journal clubs, uh, learning about antimicrobial stewardship so that they are involved from that standpoint as well. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Allison, because I think that's a huge untapped element to stewardship. And there's some really nice editorial pieces on how to engage nurses in stewardship activities. And I think the ED is a prime example. I think the one that always sticks in my head is a, a qualitative study we did that uh, was, you know, one of the quotes that was representative of, of the theme that we identified is uh, that, well, of course, all geriatric ED patients should have a urinalysis with culture done because they're, you know, how cringe is that? But it was like, you know, I can't tell you how many times someone's walked up to me with like a little vial of urine and said, look how gross this looks. This looks nasty. I'm sending this for a culture. It's a chronic like indwelling catheter patient. The urine probably looks like that all the time. And so like that culture just gets sent off. I'm like, no, no, we're fine. 
person's here for something totally different. You know, some of those testing things can be driven by our, our nursing colleagues. So I think engaging them in stewardship is so important. Amen. Empowering them, though, to make those decisions. And then nurses, I think, are the most exceptional advocates for their patients. So when they're appropriately empowered, my goodness, they yeah, absolutely are going to take over the whole stewardship world. They'll probably put stewardship pharmacists out of business because they're so stinking good (laughs) at advocating for what their patients need. So I love that idea. Wonderful. All right. As we're nearing the end of our time together, I want to make sure that we're looking forward. There was a small global pandemic recently that caused a lot of things to change, and the emergency department was all but immune from the strain and utter nonsense that COVID brought along with it. So as we're kind of looking at the next few years, understanding that none of us can actually predict the future, what does stewarding look like in the emergency department? What should we be focusing on? What would you guys like to see happen? So Michael, I'll come to you for this one first. The thing that I'm most excited about in the stewardship space that I think is is going to be somewhat perilous as well is the rapid explosion of diagnostics. There's just a tremendous amount of players right now in the host response biomarker space and the pathogen identification space. And so I've, I've been railing for years and years about the fact that we don't have the right tools to identify who is actually bacterially infected and who isn't. And so that is the main, that's the holy grail of stewardship, right? If we had a test or a panel or something that could tell us. And I think the answer is going to be some combination of, and probably in sequence of host response followed by pathogen identification. I think that's where it's going to go. But there's at least a dozen, if not more industry folks that are developing assays that are heavily being marketed and targeted towards the ED. So I think, again, we don't know the performance, how it's going to work in the real world, but it certainly raises a huge consideration or concern for diagnostic stewardship that we've not had to sort of face before. We've dabbled in it a little bit with procalcitonin. We're dealing with it with the urinalysis testing, but it's about to explode exponentially. And I think not only stewardship champions on the physician side, but our ED pharmacists, our stewardship pharmacists, our stewardship committees are going to have to be really, really thoughtful about what we bring online and defining those patient populations where they're appropriate and where they add value and where they don't sort of muddle things up and increase costs and confuse folks. And so I think we're in a, in a brave new world of diagnostics that is just getting started. I think that's the tip of the iceberg. And I'm excited to have all the new toys, but I just don't know how we're going to use them effectively. Definitely agree. More information isn't always better. So finding where we can add this information and where it can fit into an emergency department patient's workup to make things efficient and not simply slow down with a, a bog full of information is definitely something we need to figure out. I think, and this is again, low hanging fruit, but getting out of the mindset of all patients need to be prescribed something at discharge, making sure that conditions like uncomplicated diverticulitis or bronchitis do not receive antibiotics and focusing on stewardship for those patients who need antibiotics and then keeping them away from patients who don't. I would also really love to see, you mentioned COVID, make COVID treatment protocols as simple as possible. I can't say the number of days that I spent in the past couple of years just trying to fumble through what the current recommendations are for an emergency department patient with COVID. So making it as simple as possible as this becomes a seasonal issue so that we can focus on other stewardship initiatives and focus on our whole department of patients and not just the COVID patients. And as we alluded to earlier about the diagnostic uncertainty of a lot of our patients, certainly the future of those diagnostics will be 
incredibly interesting and complex to sort out, but even some of our current uh, diagnostic options are things that are certainly something that we are going to have to rein in to, to make sure that we're using them appropriately. And so we've talked about urine cultures already, and especially the, the elderly women with dementia who have more than normal altered mental status, you know, getting IV ceftriaxone for their presumed infections and things like that. Our group A strep PCRs for our adults with pharyngitis, the procalcitonins, the CRPs, those are all things that, that are issues now that I think that we need to start to address before we even get towards these these other biomarkers and things. And, and for me, myself, I think the IV part, the IV antibiotics as sort of anxiolytics for clinicians, you know, commonly, well, they're here, so let's give them an, a dose of IV before they go home. There's a lot of historical or dogmatic practices like that that we're still having to uh, dispel on a regular basis. So more of the same and then some of those exciting things for the future as well. Yeah, I mean, hard stop, like they need to stop doing that. There's one or two small studies that that um, it may be useful in pilo cases to give it an IV dose prior to discharge, but there is literally no other evidence for that practice and any other indication. So like that is one of my points whenever I talk to emergency folks at our national meetings is like, that's up there really high for operational efficiency and cost and it just does not help. Um, I think the one thing that we didn't mention that I, I think we'd be remiss to talk about is that I think it's really caught on in the ID world, this, uh, this concept that durations can be shortened dramatically, and it has not trickled down to the frontline emergency provider. So, you know, whether you build that into your order set or we work on educational efforts or what have you, it's, it's awesome that we're finally figuring out that sort of these really prolonged courses are not necessary. And I think of every little day of safe therapy is reducing the antibiotic burden of exposure. And there's some nice work that Valerie Vaughn and some other folks have done on that we can shorten durations and that every extra day is a risk of an adverse event, right? So it's like, it's not in, inconsequential. So uh, I think that's one thing we should get a nice plug in there for like both, uh, mostly for the ED discharge folks, obviously the inpatient folks need to figure that out on their end, but for our discharge patients, if we can really shorten those durations to the optimal level, that would be great. Amen. Absolutely agree. It's not like our patients are going into a black hole once they leave the emergency department. They are more accessible to their primary care providers than ever before, and they can get in contact with them. We don't need to be giving 14 days of antibiotics for pretty much anything. I think that's a really good point. I do have a lot of, let's say, maybe empathy is the right word, but sort of in some of my trainings, I've, I've had the opportunity to work at some what we'd call like true, true safety net EDs. I did some training at Cook County Hospital in Chicago back in the day. And for a lot of those patients in sort of underserved areas, the ED is their primary care. And so it's a little bit, and sometimes the wait times can exceed like 24 hours in some of those community hospitals. So I think in very nuanced situations, your threshold to prescribe can change depending on the social situation and the health literacy and the accessibility of follow-up of your patient population. So I just want to get that out there because it's not fair to the providers that work in those environments to like sort of have a one size fits all threshold, which I'm sure we all agree with, but just it's worth saying that some EDs serve an incredibly vulnerable patient population and they may not have access to follow-up or may have significant social issues or health literacy issues that may make it difficult for them to return when you're instructed to do so or, or about the importance or even the accessibility of getting antibiotics or what have you. So we have to be, have some grace in terms of like, you know, Stewardship may be different in different settings for different specific patient scenarios, but as a general rule, 
absolutely, yeah, our patients are not falling off the planet when they leave in most cases. I sometimes refer to where patients go after they leave the hospital as Narnia because it can feel that way when you have such an inpatient (laughs) bias, right? Or even in an emergency department. But yes, there is care available to them out in the earth, which is reassuring. Perfect. We will now pivot to our segment called I Feel Nerdy. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe space for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. Anybody who knows me knows I love a personality-based antibiotic question, but for today's edition, we aren't just talking about antibiotics, so I would love to know. If you were a commonly utilized medication in the ED, a fast mover of any genre, does not have to be an antimicrobial, which drug are you as a person and why? I was thinking a little bit about this, having uh, been anticipating we'd be getting this question. I, I, maybe I approached it a little bit differently, sort of what are my favorite medications in the ED? Um, for me, I'll be nerdy enough and, as a stewardship person and say like ceftriaxone is my favorite antibiotic. It's a utility knife. It's the Swiss Army knife of antibiotics. So I, I think it's pretty cool. Sadly, like one day we'll lose it. It won't work anymore because it is so much utility potentially. But um, I think in terms of like a bigger picture, one of our sort of running jokes in the ED is that like if we could pump benzodiazepines into the water or like aerosolize it, everybody would be like providers and patients would be so much happier about their ED experience. It's like lorazepam is like almost the answer to like nine out of 10 questions in the ED, essentially. Like there's really no scenario where it's a bad option, you know, for literally for a lot of indications, but it's, it just kind of like lowers the temperature of the situation and it can make everything go much more smoothly. So benzos are are a big, a big player in the ED space. I don't know that I'd call myself a benzo, um, probably the opposite of a benzo. I'm probably like, like, uh, epi or something, but, but, uh, benzos are pretty cool. The lorazepam doesn't have quite as strong anxiolytic properties as IV ceftriaxone does, unfortunately. (laughs) I will raise your benzo um, for delirium concerns, Michael, and say that I am going to be everyone's favorite ED drug, ketamine. It is the hot new thing. (laughs) It's versatile. It's useful for a lot of different patients. It has a lot of different mechanisms of action. So I can be anywhere. I can do what you need me to do. And it's always being studied. So you never know what it's going to tell you next. Can cure depression apparently. So there you yeah, go. Yeah, <laughs> can give it by multiple different routes, huge dosing range. Yeah, that's it's a good our friend. answer. That's that's solid. See, this is why I love these questions because I feel they tell you everything you need to know about a person in a very short period of time. So Zach, we'll come to you now. Oh man, it's it's just so hard to choose. I mean, initially I thought propofol because I put people to sleep when I talk, and then. <laughs> I thought similar to Allison's ketamine droperidol because I'm versatile and can adapt to many situations. But I think I finally settled on, it's maybe not a fast mover, Jillian, sorry, but N-acetylcysteine because I can solve potentially catastrophic situations before everyone knows that they're happening. Okay. I love that. You guys are such pharmacists. You're so much cooler and more creative than me. It's like, it's not even funny. This is like, it's not even a competition, but it's uh, awesome to see the pharmacist lens on this question. It's awesome. Zach, you are IV knack and not oral. That is correct. Yeah. Well, it depends who you talk to. Some people may not find me very palatable, but. This is really awesome. everything I wanted out of this question. So thank you all very much. Um, I've never been so stressed out by an I feel nerdy question. And I wrote this one myself. I have tried really hard when it comes to antibiotics. I describe myself as a blend between cefazolin and ceftaroline, not together, but like an equal 50 50 
blend of those two. So this is really difficult. I actually was going to pick lorazepam, but that was more so like things that I want, again, like placed in the water. Um, (laughs) So I think along those lines, if I could combine like a little bit of lorazepam and a little bit of atorvastatin, that's perhaps a plot twist sleeper pick. I feel like you should put those things in the water or at least my water personally. Okay. I'll only speak for my personal water supply. Uh, Anti-inflammatory I feel like statins are probably the cure to everything. It's that it's not a great answer. It's a little unhinged, especially for me, but it's rare that I say drugs that don't end in psyllin and mycin. So that is how we will go with I Feel Nerdy. I cannot thank the three of you enough for joining me today. I think this episode um, is hopefully going to be really helpful. And just thank you each for sharing your expertise today. Thanks for having us. Thanks to each of you. I feel empowered to continue stewardship efforts more than ever. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. And yeah, the ED is such a pivotal place for stewardship. And I think it would be hard for us to find a group of pharmacists who are more consistently committed to stewardship than ED pharmacists. So thanks to all of them. Our EDs are safer with you in them and appreciate your partnership. Absolutely. I love that. Allison, I like to say that the love of stewardship is contagious. You're welcome. So definitely easier in a group setting, better as a team. So uh, thanks again for for joining us today. And thank you, our listeners, for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. I have been your host, Jillian Hayes, and our featured speakers have been Zach Nelson, Michael Puglia, and Allison Dittmer. This podcast was supported by an educational grant from Melinda Therapeutics. Special thanks to them again for supporting today's episode. Breakpoints was created by Julie Ann Justo, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by myself and Jeanette Bouchard. It was edited by Rajiv Shah and peer-reviewed by Joey Cohn and Angel Hirely. Our production team includes Veronica Zafant and Justin Moore. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.